like what we do here at Clever, please consider supporting the show. To make a one-time donation, click the link in the episode description. Thank you. One for mom and one for me. Hey, beautiful. Ulta Beauty invites you to see the joy this holiday season with top gifts for everyone on your list, including you. Discover Black Friday beauty deals all week long from brands like Tarte, ColourPop, First Aid Beauty, and more. Shop in store, online, or try curbside pickup today. Alta Beauty. The possibilities are beautiful. Hi, I'm Neil Innes. And I'm Andres Bartos from Passport. Each week, we travel to a new place to tell you enlightening, smart, and just plain incredible stories which have shaped our destination. We want you to experience the world with us. And so does this week's sponsor, Booking.com. And the best news is they're about to have the biggest sale of the year where you can save 30% or more. This is a limited offer, so make sure you book before the 1st of December 2020 to travel anytime before the end of 2021. Find amazing deals now at booking.com forward slash Black Friday to come and travel with us. Support for Clever comes from Lutron. Lutron is reinventing the way you experience light with Ketra. Sometimes we take light for granted, but it can have a dramatic effect on setting, experience, and even well-being and mood. Imagine being able to recreate the uplifting energy of sunlight, the calmness of a relaxing shady tree canopy, or the intimacy of a sunset. Lutron helps designers realize their visions with simple yet sophisticated solutions that bring out the best in your space. And with Lutron's advanced lighting, Ketra, you can bring the outdoors in with light that shifts throughout the day like the sun and recreates the warmth of incandescent lighting. Be inspired by what light can do and see how spaces have been transformed by visiting podcast.ketra.com. There you can view Ketra in action and get a virtual Magic of Light demo live from their NYC Experience Center. Explore projects, installations, and more at podcast.ketra.com. That's podcast.ketra.com. What is an architecture of optimism in a post-pandemic world? It's architecture not for the sake of architecture. It's not to glorify form, but to express its purpose in every aspect of the design. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever. Today, I'm talking to Jordan Goldstein, an award-winning architect who is currently the head of global design and innovation for Gensler. He's led the design and project delivery of renowned commercial projects in the U.S. and abroad, including Beijing CP Towers, China's Duke Kunshan University campus, and Washington, D.C.'s Yard's waterfront neighborhood. Additionally, he's an educator and sought-after spokesperson on the future of design, both domestically and globally. But what makes this conversation so fascinating is his interdisciplinary approach and his focus on how architecture can elevate the human experience. Let's hear from Jordan. I'm Jordan Goldstein. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I am the Global Director of Design for Gensler. 
I have been doing architecture and design for my entire career and love it because it is an awesome opportunity to make the world a better place through the power of design. I always like to get the setup. Like, how did you get to be you? And to do that, I like to go all the way back to zero. So will you take us back to your childhood and where you grew up and maybe a little bit about what fascinated your young mind? So I grew up in Rockville, Maryland, which is not that far outside of D.C. And close family. I have two younger sisters. You know, we're in a small townhouse. And when I was around five years old, my parents started looking for a house. My dad is an attorney and he uh, was you know, working in D.C. My mom was a school teacher. During the days uh, when you know he was down at the office, she would take me around while she looked at houses. We would you know see houses in various points of construction, and uh, again, I'm five, so I'm not really probably absorbing the uh, the full intent of what they're showing. We'd come home, and she would plop me on the floor next to a pile of Legos, and she would call my father and walk him through what she had seen. And I started just playing with Legos. And I think probably in my young mind, I was trying to replicate what I was seeing. And I just started uh, getting fascinated by things that could be built. Legos were really the catalyst, I would say, at the age of five that got me wanting to be an architect. So since the age of five, I've wanted to be uh, an architect. And that's been the goal. Wow. I think that's really fascinating that from a young age, you you saw houses as they were being built and were able to kind of make that translation from their in-process stages to Legos then, to playing with it with your own mind and hands, um, but recognizing that it becomes a dwelling that really influences people's lives. Well, I give my parents a lot of credit because they encouraged it. So I'm, I'm not sure I was building anything coherent at the age of five <laughs> out of Legos, but they were you know, reassuring and saying, oh, okay, well, that is a house. That is a building. You know, when I see Legos, it immediately brings me back to uh, those moments and just the idea that you could craft and you could create and you could start to imagine these as places, as spaces was just so fascinating uh, at a young age. And I think it really got me excited kind of making that connection between what you're building and then what you're seeing. And I loved going out, you know, to those construction sites when we, you know, when, when we were doing those house tours. And, you know, a lot of times we're, you know, you may see a model home and then you walk over and the next house is like halfway through construction. So being able to kind of see, you know, a finished product and then something in production uh, was just awesome and very, I think, inspirational at a, at a young age. And it just gave me this feeling that the idea of design and architecture you know, would be a profession where there's the opportunity to kind of take arts and crafts to a whole new level and be able to do something that could actually, you know, really change uh, how people experience the world. So you were conscious then that there were humans involved in making all of these choices about how these houses got constructed. It wasn't an abstraction to you. Right. And seeing workers uh, on the construction sites and actually, you know, one of the things I appreciate my parents did is they didn't just like walk on a construction site and walk away. Like we would sit there and watch stuff getting built for, you know, someone at that age, seeing walls go up, seeing dirt being moved. uh, It was fascinating. So I think it was this interesting kind of early juxtaposition of 
putting things together and then also seeing what the end result of that was, which was just instilled in me the idea that there is this whole nature of craft in design. It's not mm-hmm. just about doodles on paper. It's about really thinking through what the whole experience would be of, of actually conceiving of an idea and then also making that, you know, all the way through to a built reality. And then I think the other thing that was really awesome about those early experiences was being able to see all these different workers doing different things on a job site really was an early introduction to the whole idea that this is not a solo art, Mm -hmm. that this is really about collaboration. You know, you're not going to get anything built if you're just trying to do it yourself. So being able to think through, you know, the, the, the different players involved and how do you really played everybody's strengths to get something truly great. I had a similar experience that, I mean, it was sort of self-guided, but in the fourth grade, my elementary school went through a major renovation. So for that summer after fourth grade, my playground was the construction site. And I discovered that if I went there on weekends and after everybody was done working, that I could climb up the scaffolding, I could go into the unfinished spaces, I could check out pallets and pallets of cinder blocks that I could rearrange like giant Legos, and I made forts. And I wish that I had just had somebody there kind of explaining to me what it all did, but I still, I sort of still sort of figured it out through deduction, you know. But what a transformational experience, right? To be able to to see all these components. It's like the, it's like a buffet. Yes. Oh, 100%. And it was so much more exciting than a regular playground that was all finished and just, you know. Yeah. Much better to see that than the actual (laughs) finished product in that case. Yeah. You know, and, and to be able to put two and two together, I still get excited when I go out to a construction site. And it's just raw materials and it's the early stages of construction. I, I still get so excited about it. And it's just like that realm of possibilities, right? Yeah, well, you definitely found your way into the right profession then, if it's still so exciting to you. What did this translate to in your teenage years? I mean, you sort of knew you wanted to be an architect from a young age. It sounds like you didn't have to do like growing pains in that area, but... I'm sure you weren't spared all the awkwardness. Right, no, no growing things in that area. It was, it, I guess, the, fu- the funny thing, I guess, for me was it felt like once I knew what I wanted to do, then it was like, what's the quickest path from A to B? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and how do I make sure I'm prepared for that path? So aside from all the normal stuff of teenage years of hanging with friends and, you know, obviously going to school and trips with friends or family. I did a lot of drawing and it wasn't like sketching, like, you know, taking a pencil and a sketchbook and going out and like sketching landscape and so forth. It was kind of hardcore drawing. I'm not sure I really at that time knew what sketching was. It was more about, you know, taking rulers, taking, you know, triangles and the other accoutrements of the profession that my parents exposed me to mm-hmm. and, and just sitting down and drawing house plans, uh, floor plans, like late nights drawing tons of plans and whether it was small homes or large homes or big buildings or small, but it didn't really matter. And it was just a lot of late nights drawing. I forget that rule of like 10,000, right? If you keep doing something over and over again, you know, you get so familiar with it. So what I realized was that was really good training in seeing space as you draw it. So like, rather than just, it's just lines on paper, just really, truly trying to extrude those lines and imagine those as 3d realities. Wow. 
Yeah, heavy, heavy for a teenager. (laughs) Well, I mean, I'm fascinated because I'm trying to work my way into your mind there because this is you imagining space that doesn't exist and putting lines to it, right? This isn't you sort of redrawing spaces that you've seen. This is you designing and putting lines to it. Right. And I have this, this distinct memory of, of one day my grandmother, who also was, you know, the whole family really encouraged it, which was great, taking me to an architect's office with the drawings that I had been doing. Again, I'm a teenager, so these aren't really, I wouldn't call them very proficient drawings. And sitting down with an, uh, an architect and saying, uh, you know, here's what he's doing and, and what do you do? Help explain what you do to him. And then what do you think of these drawings? And I remember the guy like looking through the drawings. And he's like, "Oh, you know what? Okay, well, these this kind of orientation of space makes sense. The where you put the you know the plumbing, where you put the kitchen, you know, all that that kind of makes sense." And that was actually really reassuring. I mean, it was it was actually kind of wonderful moment to get exposure to what someone actually does in this profession at a relatively early age and know that what I was doing wasn't so off base, which was great. But I did find that growing up in Rockville with DC is in immediate vicinity, you know, we, we went down to DC a lot and going down and driving around the monuments and driving around buildings that really, you know, are, are truly iconic uh, pieces of architecture and Mm -hmm. certainly stand for so much in the history of our country. Like that was really interesting to be able to sit there. Okay. I'm, I'm drawing this house, let's say, Mm -hmm. uh, and I can imagine what it could look like, but at the same time, you know, over the weekend, I'm driving down with my family and we're seeing the Lincoln Memorial, you know, or the Washington monument and realizing that, Oh, here, here are buildings that have stood for a long time and have such architectural significance. How could architecture be more than just enclosure? Yes, because you're getting a sense of the symbolism and sculptural and cultural meaning that architecture can represent in addition to its, you know, shelter properties. Absolutely. And then also realizing that, okay, well, this is one particular society's view of iconic architecture. What does the rest of the world look like? Right. Oh my gosh. You must have, your brain must have been so hungry for exploration. Exploding. And, and, and largely our travel as a family had been really domestic. So, you know, we, we did family road trips to different parts of the country. My parents were really big on trying to expose us to different aspects of, of the country, you know, just the national parks and history and so forth, which was certainly amazing. Mm-hmm. But I also really wet my appetite to what's the rest of the world look like? And it wasn't until I got into college that I had some opportunities to kind of open that window and look at a much more holistic picture of how different communities look at architecture. Well, that, I'm glad you said that because that's exactly what I want to know is how did you do that exploration and what were the college years like for you? You already knew you were going to study architecture from five. So it was probably a matter of just picking your schools and then figuring out how to get out to see the rest of the world. Yeah, it would have been good if there was like instant degree, but um, <laughs> having to go through the, the the rigors of architectural training was definitely a surprise. I mean, the, the late nights in, in design studios on a college campus, you know, well known that the, the lights are always on and the students are always there. So I definitely experienced that. But I went to University of Maryland for undergraduate, which was an amazing deep dive in, in what I would call the tectonics of architecture, like how things get built. It was also a great just overall college experience because it was a really a mix of a liberal education mixed with hardcore architecture. So, you know, I found that I was really interested in literature and creative writing. So I got a minor in literature. 
what I realized though, that doing all this exploration meant that when I got to the end of my undergraduate time, I was actually short some credits and I needed to finish off a couple classes to graduate. And that would have to be over the summer. I had two choices. I could either take those classes in College Park, Maryland, which is where University of Maryland is based, or travel and I could take them abroad. So there was an opportunity to take them in Italy. Mm. So definitely check that box, right? I'm, yeah. I'm going, going to Italy. So I went to Italy. I'd never been to Europe, which was awesome. So basically, I finished off my University of Maryland education by going to Rome with other students and being based in Rome where the classroom was the city. Wow. You know, there was no classroom. Um, so every day we were out looking at buildings, drawing, sketching, understanding history, understanding how culture interacts with history, you know, and, and with the built environment. It was a fascinating, eye-opening experience. And at the same time, it was also finishing the credits I needed to get a degree, right? <laughs> but it showed me something that got me interested in global architecture and design, which was I was seeing a particular point of view. I was seeing Western architecture still. And the the amazing architecture of of Rome and how it has endured for centuries and eons and you know so forth, but what I realized is I, I wanted to get another perspective. I really needed to see Eastern architecture, mm, Eastern mm-hmm. philosophies. So I chose uh, University of Pennsylvania for grad school for two reasons. One, at the time, they were the only uh, university in the U.S. offering a Japan program. Two is they also were really getting into digital explorations of design. Oh, okay. Uh, that, that was kind of at the advent of digital technology coming into architecture. So, you know, mid-90s, great time to, to go there. So I found that that was like a full-scale immersion in digital design. And what does it mean to like explore the 3D implications of your design uh, ideas and understand that design intent? you know, well before any hammer was, you know, put to nail. When you say the implications, do you mean things like wind and casting shadows and Yeah, all those things through renderings and animations and three D models of, of, of buildings, digital three D models of buildings. Okay. And and I and that was new to me. Mm-hmm. And it was also really largely new to the profession at that time. This is still the age of like big clunky machines and printers that are the size of rooms. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, so seeing that and experiencing that was really interesting because it's like you're, you're okay. Well, all right. Well, instead of drawing the line on paper where the paper may be, let's say it's, you know, 20 inches by 30 inches and that's my parameters, I'm drawing in digital space and there are no parameters. Like I could keep drawing that line forever. Right. Right. Uh, so that was like mind blowing. And then in the middle of all that, I went to Japan and they had this really awesome program where you would be studying with a, a Japanese master in, in Japan. And it wasn't just going and like exploring buildings. It was literally going and learning about traditional Japanese uh, construction and, and traditional Japanese architecture oh, and wow. traveling around the country with this Japanese master and appreciating it from his eyes, which was such a profound change from the, uh, the the experiences in Rome. Yeah, because the the philosophies are so different, but also being able to travel with the master and get his particular perspective on how the success or 
lack of success of certain types of execution must have been really informative. And seeing buildings that were, you know, built a thousand plus years ago that yeah. had no nails and, you know, were all done with beautiful craftsmanship and yet they still stand. You know, what? one of the things I really loved about his way of teaching was if you're going to go around the country and experience these places, you actually need to stay in these spaces. So what he would do is like when we would go and look at Shinto um, temples, mm-hmm. we would actually stay in the temple. We would stay overnight on tatami oh, mats on the floor. That's so beautiful. Wake up when the Buddhist monks were like doing their chants and like you're really experiencing the space. Yeah. Oh, how important that must have been to your development. I mean, because buildings are so theoretical until they're not. <laughs> right, exactly. So, and then they're real and you're yeah. like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So to be able to really experience all these different types of spaces, well, that just adds to your sort of toolkit and repertoire for how certain things and materials go together to create environments. It, it does. And there was one final kind of blast, I would call it, from the college experiences, which is when I returned from Japan back to Philadelphia, my mind was like totally reeling from these different experiences, you know, mm-hmm. within a short, relatively short period, seeing, you know, and being immersed in Western architecture and then being immersed in Eastern, you know, philosophies and design, you know, vocabulary. Then like, you know, what do you do? I did a, an internship at an architect's office in Philly. And one day that architect came in and he announced aloud into the office, you know, who can, who's really good at model building? And he like looks over at me and he's like, uh, you know, you, 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 you can build good models. I, I need you to go to uh, Zuni, New Mexico and stay on the Zuni Native American reservation and work with the tribe to build a model of their ancient Pueblo such that they can use that model as a teaching tool to help the next generation understand how to maintain it and, and keep it something that lasts for centuries. Oh, wow. What an honor. (laughs) It was so cool. Wow. And literally the first day I got out there, you know, I didn't know what to expect. And I get onto the reservation, uh, meet some members of the tribe, and um, they come in and they're like, are you ready for dancing? And I'm like, what What? what do they mean? What? what, Dancing? I didn't know I'd be dancing. And they're like, it's been a drought. And I'm like, oh my gosh, they mean rain dances. And Zuni is a closed reservation. So it was an honor to be on the grounds. And it was even more of an honor to be brought into their Pueblo kind of main square and watch these traditional rain dances and see this architecture in, you know, the way it was meant to be used, Mm -hmm. uh, which was, again, a mind-blowing experience right on the heels of coming back from, you know, from Asia. Wow. I'm so jealous of these experiences. But I also have a a real practical question, which is what kind of relationship was in place to facilitate bringing you onto the reservation? Is that an existing framework that we can inject some energy into? Yeah. I mean, definitely today with certainly all the conversations we're we're seeing about the social inequalities and Mm -hmm. inclusiveness in communities and making sure that, you know, all, all communities are represented and, you know, looked after. It is a relevant conversation for today, for sure. What facilitated it back then was one of the members of that architecture firm was affiliated with Penn. And so he taught there and had applied for a Getty grant to work with the Zuni tribe. Okay. And they had just gotten the grant 
And it's a program that lasted for many years to be able to, to get students connected in with, with the Tuni Native American tribe and to help and to work together. And what was, I think, really interesting then, and, and I think this is, there's so much learning that can happen through these collaborations, mm-hmm. is, you know, now sustainability is such a, an important term and, and resilience in our global environment. But, you know, here's a Native American tribe that is, you know, really understanding what it means to use materials that are of the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, and seeing that and that their Pueblo is built out of materials that are literally brought, you know, brought forth from the ground right there was uh, a really early, you know, your comment about toolkit is so right on. It was a really interesting kind of tool to add to the toolkit about how do we look at, you know, the the environments we're in, the sites we're, we're, we're looking at and recognizing that there's potentially materials right there to, to build with that can better those communities. Wow, what a formative experience. And would you say that, do you feel good about the model that you were able to build at, for a teaching tool? Do you feel good about your yeah, contribution I think was, there? <laughs> Yeah, I think it's pretty. I think it's pretty good. Uh, aesthetics are certainly in the eye of the beholder, right? So, yes. I, I, I guess, in my opinion, for a um, a college uh, student, it was a good model. And the good thing was, what ended up happening is when I finished working there, you know, someone else came in to pick up where I left off, and they were able to just keep going. So, oh, good. So that was reassuring. But it did leave in you know, kind of somewhere in me that I wasn't really sure how to kind of tug at that thread how do you help communities? Mm-hmm. And, you know, fast forward many years, and we can certainly talk about it, you know, at Gensler, recognizing that, you know, since we are a global firm, are there ways to do this in in any community globally? And that led to a conversation with um, some folks in Thailand that brought us into the slums of of Bangkok, really working to with with residents there in the field to understand how to appreciate their communities in different ways and how to make their lives better in those communities. And that was seven, eight years ago. So that, that, that connection between the mid nineties and a latter part of my career, you know, the threads were sewn at an early age to be able to recognize that there are these needs mm-hmm. and, you know, to be, you know, for me to then be at a place like Gensler where we're able to, to do that, to, uh, to work with communities, to work with people, wherever they are in more of a borderless environment um, to help try to better their, their worlds through design. Unwanted family guests are like fish. They start to stink after three days. So what's the best mattress for them this holiday season? Definitely not a nectar. Then they'll never leave. Flip those fish your old mattress and put your human body on a nectar. Prices start at just $499, and you get $399 in accessories thrown in, a 365-night home trial, and a forever warranty. A fresher deal than your mackerelly mother-in-law, right? Go to Nectarsleep.com today. Support for Clever comes from Skillshare. Interested in learning a new skill or honing an existing passion? Or maybe you're like me, super curious, creative, and looking for new ways to express your ideas. Skillshare is the perfect resource to do just that. Skillshare is an online learning community for everyone, whether you're a beginner or a pro, and they're giving clever listeners a free trial of their premium membership. Skillshare members get unlimited access to thousands of inspiring classes with hands-on projects and feedback from their massive creative community. 
Plus, most classes are under 60 minutes with short lessons to fit any schedule. At a time when so many important conversations are happening in our world, your voice is more essential than ever. Explore classes to unlock your creativity for social good. I know I'm particularly interested in finding my voice again in creative writing. I can't wait to immerse myself in Ashley C. Ford's Write the Real You class and Roxanne Gay's Crafting Personal Essays with Impact. I have such immense respect for their work. I can't believe I get to learn from them on Skillshare. Take the next step of your creative journey at Skillshare.com slash Clever2, where our listeners get a free trial of Skillshare's premium membership. Start now at Skillshare.com slash Clever2. Support for Clever comes from Master and Dynamic. We know you love great design and care about quality audio. So we know you will love Master and Dynamics headphones and earphones. Brilliant sound and design motivates everything they do. So Master and Dynamic products are the perfect gift for the music and design obsessed alike. And after you see the craftsmanship and premium materials, we know you'll want to get a pair for yourself too. Whether you're looking for luxurious and comfortable over-ear headphones, portable and power-packed true wireless earphones, or an immersive wireless speaker, Master and Dynamic has what you need to upgrade your listening experience. Hear your favorite podcast, clever, obviously, and your favorite songs in a whole new way. Visit masterdynamic.com and use the code CLEVER for 10% off your new pair of headphones. Terms and conditions apply. That's masterdynamic.com. Well, I definitely want to dig into that project then. It sounds fascinating. But before we deconstruct that, will you just sort of connect the dots between this experience with the Native Americans to today? I mean, today you're the head of global design and innovation at Gensler. Um, You've got many skyscrapers and built projects and awards to your name. How long have you been at Gensler and, and how did you build your career to be able to get to this point? So right after uh, finishing at University of Pennsylvania, I was really attracted to uh, to Gensler. So I, I, I came to Gensler right after uh, graduate school. And the reason I, I was attracted to the firm was, it was interesting, going around interviewing at different firms, one of the things that just struck a chord with me is that Gensler at the time, you know, was, was a growing firm. It was certainly, you know, a global firm, but not nearly at the scale we're at now. But there was this conversation about culture and people at those early interviews. And, you know, design was, was not overtly stated. It was almost like an undercurrent to the entire conversation. The woman that was the interviewing uh, me at the time, Diane Hoskins, who was leading the Washington, D.C. office, who's now co-CEO of the firm, you know, it, it, it was such a, I think, fascinating way to, to look at design and really connected with me with the experiences I had, you know, learning about architecture through the lenses of these different cultures. So the idea to come into a place that was really about people and about culture and recognizing that design is a vehicle that allows you to really um, enhance uh, people's, you know, worlds of work or live or play in a way that is meaningful to them, that was, I think, really compelling. 
Now, that being said, I still came in as like a junior designer, you know, mm-hmm. so it was really kind of the early days. And there's in the design profession, there's such a built in, you know, norm of apprenticeship, you know, go in and learn at the hands of those that have been doing it a while, and which is wonderful. But at the same time, I was coming out of Penn, like so many others at the time coming out of school that have just been exposed to all these new digital tools, which the design firms at the time, you know, all of them were just learning to, to play with. So it was a, it was an interesting time to come in and be learning as, you know, a junior person, but at the same time recognize that there's some skill sets that uh, me and others graduating at that time period were exposed to that actually could make us teachers in that environment. So we could be teaching at the same time that we're learning. Yes. And I think that continues now because technology and ideology and philosophy is sort of evolving so fast that I think relationships of learning are much more of a mutual exchange. Um, The elders have wisdom and experience and the younger people have idealism, energy, and new practices to share. So true. And, and I think what's, what's amazing now is, is I think we're at another point of inflection. If the mid nineties were kind of the advent of the, the digital wave, first wave into architecture and design, we're at this uh, next kind of tidal wave or tsunami where the whole idea of AI and direct to manufacturing right from design to fabrication, you know, 3D printing and making all of those uh, technologies are at play, causing those of us that are in the profession, those of us that are coming into the profession from school to recognize that the toolbox has never been richer for designers and architects to think differently about how they go about making and designing uh, places. Well, and I think it's really interesting what you said, too, about what attracted you to Gensler, because it seems like there was this conversation of people and culture first and using design to service that as opposed to using design to impose your design philosophy onto the people and culture, which is a pretty important distinction. (laughs) A a very important distinction. and You're spot on. And it's that interesting uh, flip of the lens mm-hmm. where it's not architecture for architecture's sake. It's really about understanding who are the, who's the audience, who's the users yeah. and, and, and what do they, what are their pain points? You know, everyone's got, depending on what the project type is, there's always these pain points. And how do you look to those rather than just want to lay a pencil down on paper and start drawing something? So how does this all apply this and your your interest in communities and when you work with an organization like Gensler and have the keys to the world, essentially, how did this all come together in the Bangkok project that you were talking about? Can we look at that? Sure. Yeah, it's interesting. There was this whole kind of um, segue that started at the beginning of the, uh, the, the recession in 2008. And, you know, that moment when work was really drying up um, in, you know, many parts of the, you know, the the, the world and certainly in the U.S., it was a time to look, you know, at where are the opportunities? Where's the work? And I followed this trail, this breadcrumb trail that got me from D.C. to India to China to Thailand, all through some client relationships Mm -hmm. uh, and the Thai relationship uh, was one that really came out of work that I had been doing with our teams in, uh, in Shanghai. 
And this was all, again, playing out against the backdrop of a recession. And one of the things uh, we realized that in, in Thailand, just getting started in Bangkok, we were working with a, a, a client there, a wonderful client that is called the CP Group, also another client tied in with them, which is called you know, Magnolias. And they had this interest in not just development, but also in helping and bettering communities. So one of the things I started talking about with them at the time was there's an opportunity to continue to do development, um, but at the same time, you know, is there a way that we can actually tie it all together, growing the next generation of architects and designers, and maybe we can actually bridge the gap between cultures and actually blend uh, students from different uh, parts of the world together on a common problem. Mm. And so we uh, we stitched together students from the U.S. and students from two different so two different universities in the U.S., two different universities in Thailand, and they worked together in the field with us. You know, we spent about two and a half weeks um, in um, the slums of Bangkok, really going through and understanding, meeting residents, uh, meeting you know community leaders there, understanding you know what are the are the pain points there. And then coming back and all of them got an internship at, uh, you know, at Gensler to work the problem. Let's, mm-hmm. let's design for what we saw. You know, we got to understand all these different audience members, these users, um, and we got to really listen to their, their challenges. How do we collectively, you know, practitioners and students solve for that? We did that for about six to eight weeks after that. Uh, and came up with some really uh, awesome solutions, really intriguing solutions that uh, we presented back to the community. We shared the ideas and we felt like it was potentially a new you know, model, a, a, you know, a, a new paradigm of, of teaching design uh, because you're, you're in a sense bringing together clients, uh, practitioners and students and faculty in a way that's really kind of action learning oriented. It's solving real problems that people have in their communities, in their cities. And I, I think it's it, it's one that if you look at all the issues we are seeing today that are playing out on a global scale, that's probably really relevant to the world today. Oh, I absolutely think so. I think the, the community involvement is a huge part of it, and not just the ethnography at the front end to learn the pain points and come up with solutions, but the part about going back to them and presenting possible solutions. When the community is co-architecting the solutions, then they have investment, they feel reflected, and they have some sense of ownership and pride of place. And I think that is huge. Nobody wants to live in, in a place that was forced upon them. Agreed. And for us as architects and designers to tease out what is the pride of place that they either have or that they or that they need or want. Can you share some of the pain points and some of the solutions? Yeah. And, and I, it, it's led to some other things too, which I think are more opportunistic given what we're seeing in the world today. A couple of solutions that we were able to collaborate on and, and develop was two things related to the, the whole notion of community. Talking to a lot of the residents there, there was, there was a pride of place. They actually really appreciated um, the interactivity they were having with the others that were there, that there was a, a multi-generational 
um, sense of belonging. So how do you support that notion of community? So one of the things we designed uh, was this uh, uh, model, I'll call it a prototype, for a community center that would bring these generations together and would allow them a gathering point. Because in, in these slums, you know, while there were so many residents, in a sense, living in extremely tight densities, there wasn't a space for the community to gather. Uh, so being able to afford them that space, but then recognize that you have to have that space be able to handle the intense climate, the issues of flooding, uh, heavy rains that you certainly can get there, um, but make it a welcoming place. What are some of the activities that you could do there? Well, one of the things we realized is that there was some amazing craftsmanship in those communities. And it wasn't really being put to the, um, you know, put to the ultimate level of use. So are there products that the community can create furniture, that the community could create using materials that are found objects there that would create uh, furniture products that could then be sold to the uh, kind of those in the larger uh, community beyond mm-hmm. to help you know raise money that supports the community. And so we developed a series of products that they could make using materials and components that they have at hand. So whether that's tables or benches or chairs that were um, very, you know, easily made uh, by, by the craftsmen that were there, that these are things that could be, you know, commercialized or that they could be utilizing and getting revenue for their community. That led me to, to really realize that there are so many different ways to, to think about teaching today and to bringing the, re- the problems of, uh, of society into the classroom in ways where students aren't just sitting there absorbing it, but they're, they're actually getting their hands around those problems. And the classroom becomes, in a sense, a, almost a, 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 tr- a real-time studio environment where they're interacting with clients, they're interacting with community members and practitioners. So it doesn't create that chasm where you, you finish school and then you enter the real world and there's like a disconnect between what you learned and what you're actually practicing. Right, because in school, um, you're allowed to let your imagination run wild, um, which is great on some levels, but it doesn't necessarily um, strengthen the real-world connections that you're talking about. So these kind of real-world workshops also allow the student to develop a real uh, framework for a creative process that they can use out in the world. Exactly, and it exposes them to uh, a broader tool set at a younger age that just makes their ability to jump into the career. It's like an early springboard rather than the slow ramp up that was the conventional norm for an architect or designer. So is this kind of thinking why that you're, you're also drawn to teaching because you are also a professor? I, I love it. Uh, I find that uh, teaching definitely grows the next generation but it, it, I think it, it's like kind of doing um, my part and a lot of my colleagues at Gensler also teach to build a stronger bridge between academia and practice. You know, I learn so much by being in the classroom with students and I'll freely admit it, it helps me feel younger. So that's always a good thing, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, but there is something about being on a college campus. It's that whole idea of uh, the possibilities. Um, it's inspirational. Uh, and you see all these people that are, going through this, this, this learning process um, that will be a launching pad for them in society. But at the same time, you know, you hope that that campus is a safe environment where they can experiment, they can explore, 
and they can really innovate. Um, so being able to be a part of that is thrilling. And the, you know, to be able to do that in addition to the daily work I'm doing, you know, from a global design perspective, I think just makes it much more of a well-rounded uh, view of the world. I wholeheartedly agree. I've done a bit of teaching as well, and I've done a fair amount of school. And the college campus environment, to me, like the most apt metaphor is it's a greenhouse. And it's just that's, that's great metaphor. so yes. rich. You can sm- It's like humid, and you can smell the growth, and the soil just smells like nutrients, and the chlorophyll is in the air, and things are just growing and blooming, and it's just so rich. Yeah, endless opportunities, endless possibilities. I, I, I agree with you. And, and to be able to, to help to influence students, fortunately been able to teach at many different universities now. And, you know, I, I, I love to be able to experience different campuses and to try out different models for, for teaching. But, you know, the, the common denominator is trying to bring in these real world problems into the classroom. And in some cases, I've done it where it's product-based, where, where we bring in actual product manufacturers and they drop a problem into the class and the class is actually designing products. Um, and then, you know, others where it's, you know, related to kind of big scale buildings and others where it's even bigger scale, like urban plans or cities. One of the other things that's really great about it, working so closely with the younger generation is that they aren't jaded yet and they are very idealistic frequently. I mean, you sort of need to be to throw yourself into the rigors um, of architecture and the, the idea of building a better tomorrow. And you speak about the architecture of optimism and designing to elevate the human experience. So maybe you can teach us a little bit now um, about your creative process and what this means and what are some specific examples of elevating the human experience? Sure. It it is such a unusual time, right? For so many, in so many ways um, right now. And I think we see this for me and my colleagues at at Gensler, not just, you know, in the U S but we have, you know, we're, we're, we're global. So we're looking at this, you know, in all these different uh, cultures and all these different societies um, recognizing that there's this confluence of challenges as we think about people reengaging with their communities, you know, post pandemic, mm-hmm. you know, against this backdrop, we certainly have, you know, the, the pandemic itself, we have economic distress, we have social inequality, we have civic unrest, mm-hmm. you know, all of that leads, you know, me to believe that this is a moment to think about an architecture of optimism. And I think in order to do that, we have to like start with what's the definition of optimism I looked it up, you know, thinking about today, and one of the ones I found was a hopefulness and confidence about the future. There's this a, a, another one, which is a tendency to look on the more favorable side of events um, to expect the most favorable outcome. And then two more that I thought were good were a belief that good ultimately predominates over evil in the world and a belief that goodness pervades reality. If we take those as the baseline definitions of optimism, yeah. what is an architecture of optimism in a post-pandemic world? And, and I think we we feel through the research we've been doing throughout Gensler and, and certainly for my own personal experiences, it's architecture that is empathetic and inspirational. Uh, it's causing you to appreciate the places and spaces that you're in. It's architecture that connects us to nature to the outdoors. It brings natural light in. 
you know, as I mentioned earlier, it's architecture not for the sake of architecture. It's not to glorify form, but to express its purpose in every aspect of the design. And I guess when we think about a post-pandemic world, you know, would think that it's architecture that makes people feel safer. Um, it's architecture they can trust and maybe promotes wellness and celebrates life. And certainly given what we're seeing in the last few weeks, that it supports inclusion uh, and diversity mm-hmm. and frankly supports the human experience at like every scale and level of our daily lives. How do you do that? Well, that's certainly the challenge, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it is the question. I definitely feel like what you were saying earlier is so spot on, which is being able to uh, make sure that the community is involved in the process and that it isn't a bunch of designers in the corner um, trying to solve for a problem that they may not fully understand. Right. So I, I definitely believe that now more so than ever before, it injects a period into the design process of listening, learning, and understanding. And a diversity of perspectives. Absolutely. Yes. And that's part of listening, learning, and understanding. But I mean, that it almost needs to be spelled out so explicitly because – as you learned when you put the U.S. students with the Thai students, I'm sure there was tons of cultural information that, that got transmitted there that you never would have had access to when you're just trying to understand it from an anthropological perspective. Yeah, and your, your, your comment about anthropological is so spot on. And I remember in one of my early studio experiences, you know, growing and building a studio at Gensler, you know, I, I really, I've always believed in an interdisciplinary approach to design. It's kind of what attracted me to so many different moves in, in, in my journey that being able to have a studio that's filled with different skill sets was really key so that, you know, you have a cultural anthropologist at the table, you have architects, interior designers, industrial designers, graphic designers, web designers, you know, all around the table. And then you bring the community in, right? So mm-hmm. then you now have a design that's made richer by the voices of many rather than being owned by any one voice. So interdisciplinary always has made a lot of sense to me. And I've also just personally really reacted not favorably to being pigeonholed or siloed. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I agree with you there. <laughs> <laughs> it makes me so itchy and uncomfortable and just yep. frankly mad. But yet there are also challenges and roadblocks to that everywhere. So part of the practice must be a, a kind of finessing of the situation in order to encourage interdisciplinary participation. Right. Right. I, I agree with you. And it's interesting. It's um, I feel like in those situations and what I've experienced over the years is that, you know, all of those moments still need a conductor of the symphony. Yeah. Um, it needs someone that can really um, that's not after anything about themselves. It's actually about really recognizing the strengths of of everyone around the table, kind of the aces and spaces of everybody and getting everyone to play to their strengths then you can potentially get the best of everybody on the table in a way that is truly like enhancing whatever the problem is, whatever the strategy is um, and the solution. That's challenging. I think that's, that's challenging in so many respects and it requires, you know, I think a, a, an ability to kind of step back and recognize, you know, we're trying to put ourselves in the shoes of others. It's back to that idea of empathetic design. What's the motivation and what are the issues that the other person across the table 
may be coming to this situation with? And how do we make sure that they're appreciated and that they're recognized in a way that they feel that they can contribute openly to the engagement? Yes. And that's more important than ever now, especially as we're, we're becoming so hyper conscious of how some voices don't feel safe in expressing or that they have a real open pathway to contribution. Right. And I, I'm, I'm with you. And, and so many, um, you know, there's, there's so much pain points that we're seeing exposed, uh, you know, over these last few months in, in so many different ways that, it just shows that the architects and designers today um, really have to recognize the sensitivities that are um, that are there, um, that are just inherent, that need to be appreciated in order to kind of get to uh, the opportunities for design. Agreed. And I also think that it's an, such an amazing opportunity because all these pain points are being laid bare and are starting to be sort of understood by the general public in a more visceral um, and more graphic way. Uh, it, it puts a lot more pressure on res- and responsibility on the people who are shaping the world and the built world for tomorrow to really, really address the these sort of cancers in our society and design for more, you talked about designing for well-being, and you've also talked about for creating more resilient communities. And I think society depends on it. Otherwise, we will collapse. Yeah, I I think that it it says that this may be uh, one of the most pivotal moments in design in history, in a way that uh, we look at all these issues and that there's this amazing opportunity with this convergence of technology that we've never really seen before into design, recognizing the, the, the issues that are at play in our communities at large, that we really have this moment to think about how we are shaping the future of our cities um, and our communities, and to do so in ways that um, could really enhance and elevate the experience for those that are living in those cities or those that move to those cities in ways that we never have before. So just to kind of add some more detail to that idea, can you give us some examples or some ideas that you're toying with? For us, you know, we've been looking at it, you know, pre-pandemic, we were looking at, you know, how do we approach the future of cities with a resilient uh, mindset? You know, how do we bring this kind of what we've been calling our global, you know, cities climate challenge to the table, which is really challenging every project, every, uh, you know, client that we're working with, every community that we engage with to think about sustainability at a totally different level. With the onset of the pandemic, we started to weave in thinking about how do we make it more about global wellness? Mm-hmm. You know, where it's actually trying to make the world healthier and better for all of us, right? You know, not just a better planet, but a better place to, to live in, you know, that we're truly enhancing and elevating the experiences for, for all. And then you add in the other experiences with the economy, you add in this, the, the social inequalities that have been laid bare and the, um, and the civic unrest. And it really is an opportunity to, uh, you know, think very differently about, you know, what does it mean to have a town square, you know, a plaza? What does it mean to, you know, have, you know, mixed use? Uh, and what does that mixed use equation really want to dial itself to 
recognizing everything we've been experiencing, you know, over the last couple of months, you know, what it's allowed us to do is look at some of these uh, problems with, uh, I think, a a really fresh perspective with our clients. Um, You know, so there's been mixed use projects that we've been looking at, you know, in some of our communities that start to think about how do we actually create um, places for community to gather? Mm-hmm. How do we, in a safe and, and healthy manner, how do we create buildings that actually, you know, for those mixed use uh, components that um, have, you know, wellness woven into them. So they are healthy buildings. They are buildings that actually recognize that where they are in the climate, you know, in a sense that they can have, you know, potentially breathable skins. You know, we did a tower in Pittsburgh for PNC that is a, I was the, when, when it was built a few years ago, it was the greenest building in North America. And it had a breathable skin to it such that on, it had tied into technology that recognized that when it was good weather days, mm-hmm. that the skin literally opened up and there's natural ventilation flowing through the building. So imagine that workplace environment, you know, versus say a sealed one, mm-hmm. you know, and being able to have that opportunity to have that fresh air uh, and be able to feel like you're in a healthier building is important, but I think you, it can go. It goes further. It can it can actually then transcend to the overall program. Mm-hmm. So whether it's the you know the retail and the food and beverage experiences, whether it's the hospitality experiences that are in that mixed use equation, all of those can uh, be looked at through these different lenses in a way that they become you know much more uh, about you know plugins to cities that actually help better the context, not just the immediate block that they're in. I can feel that when I'm in a building, I mean, I'm sensitive to space anyway. I'm I'm a designer and I think about space like that. But when I'm in a building and I can feel that I'm part of a working system, that feels better to me, not just a block of concrete that's supposed to like sort of dominate nature and create boundaries, but a building that sort of works as part of a larger ecosystem. I know there's a, a skyscraper that you designed that has, instead of a spire, it has an inverted cone at the top to collect rainwater. Right, Shanghai Tower. Yes, yeah. we did. Uh, it's uh, we did this uh, tower in, in you know downtown Shanghai or in Pudong, which is like it was basically like the skyscraper garden of of Shanghai. And you're right, it has an inverted um, cone at the top that harvests rainwater that's used for irrigation of some of the interior gardens of the of the building it also had has wind turbines built into the top of the building as well that helps offset some of the power needs for the building it's actually like a vertical city i mean if you took a, multiple city blocks and kind of turned them from horizontal to vertical that's you know a, a, like a concept in shanghai tower um you know and and similarly if we stay in china for a second you know there's a project i did uh, with our teams um, in the in actually a similar moment, in a sense, it was in the midst of of the global economic crisis that began in 08, and it's for Duke University, and it was uh, it's called Duke Quinshan University, and it's a new university outside of Shanghai. And to your point um, that you just raised, uh, it's it was a full campus built at once, but it is totally um, a part of the ecosystem that's around it. Um, it is. It actually is the first lead campus in China, um, and it is a true blending of East and West architectural languages. The site itself was farmland that had a really high water table, and it's in a part of um, the outskirts of Shanghai 
that has these, you know, traditional water towns. So there's a town called like Zhuangzhou that is, um, you know, a water town, which is like a, like a Venice of China. Mm-hmm. And what we realized is that, you know, to actually have this campus feel like it is part of this community and that it actually take advantage of the site, it can't be like a dense, you know, series of high rises, like feeling like you're in downtown Beijing or downtown Shanghai. It needs to be low rise. It needs to be of the earth. It needs to be human scale. It needs to, you know, use water to tell a story. So instead of the traditional kind of, you know, campus quad, you know, where you have like the big lawn and you have these buildings around it, we actually just literally let the water come up um, that was literally a meter below the ground. And the entire campus main um, kind of heart of the campus is, is, is stitched around this body of water. And then these, these bridges that cross it and create these wonderful places that people can learn outdoors or they can learn indoors. And it promotes that idea that learning can happen anywhere. And it's this series of buildings that feel like um, there's a human scale to them and that it, it's something that feels like it sits on this former farmland and not something that in a sense towers over it. Wow. That sounds magical. I'd like to go there. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we, we, I wish we both could go there right now for a visit, but you know, it, it is interesting. I did go back there um, in last fall and didn't say anything about who, you know, that I'm a, was an architect on the project or whatever. And I just walked around and talked to students. And you know, we we talked earlier about pride of place, and mm-hmm. there was such a pride of place, and that people were just sitting around and appreciating the outdoors or the indoors or the relationship of the buildings to the outdoors. And you know, I walked away feeling really good. And we talked about like creating projects that help communities and plug in. It felt like there that these students were really uh, appreciating their surroundings and appreciating the moment in time for them that was supported by the architecture. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because I think it's, it's one thing to sort of analyze what problems need to be solved and then design around solving those problems and then apply them but you really, in order to know if that worked, in order to inform your future explorations and projects, you need to know what was successful or not successful about it. You sometimes don't know that for five or 10 years after the project's built. So so true. And being able to try to figure out the life cycle is, I think, is a good point. I mean, being able to revisit projects and go back through buildings and, and try playing our hand at being the users, not just the designers, there's so much learning that can happen from that. And it, it can inform adjustments to those projects. It can inform how we approach new projects. Yeah. Okay. So I have kind of a, a question that's on my mind a lot. Buildings and, I mean, even residences, smart homes and, and skyscrapers are getting more and more technologically advanced. And there are some technological advancements that pose obvious benefits but also can be problematic. For instance, I can see a number of ways how facial recognition might be helpful in a large building system, but it's also racist (laughs) and, you know, rife with potential problems. So are you ever haunted by the possibility that some idealistic technological implementation could turn sour? You raise a really uh, challenging and interesting point to where we are with the 
you know, I, I would call it the ascent of the prop tech world, you know, the whole internet of things now making its way into architecture. And it, it creates a very, you know, I think unique um, moment where architecture can be smart. We, we in many ways want it to be smart um, so that we're able to learn how our buildings are performing, learn how our buildings are being used, learn how space is being you know, appreciated or used and actually monitor it so that we're not overusing energy, that we're actually being conscious of, you know, um, how we can, you know, actually make things more efficient. But at the same time, user access, being able to have, you know, biometric security to come into a building. You're right. There are definitely, you know, the pros and cons of that. And it raises the question of like how much, how much opt in should be you know, brought into the equation. Mm-hmm. You know, I know for, for me, you know, I went back to um, our office a couple of weeks ago just to pick up some things and recognizing the whole pandemic, I, I was thinking about how many surfaces I was touching to go from my car to, you know, into the building, you know, through the lobby up to the floors that we're on. And I'm like, wow, you know, there, there are ways to do this touchless. In this particular moment in time, I would, I would be okay with being able to opt in such that I could have a touchless journey. And many people may disagree with that, but I, I was thinking about how many times I had to p- apply Purell to my hands <laughs> and check my face mask and, you know, put on gloves. And I was thinking if I didn't have to touch anything, would that, would that be a better journey? And in this particular case, it would have been. Is that going to be true every day? Don't know. Um, but for the moment, it feels like there's kind of a short-term reaction to this, a midterm and a long-term. Mm-hmm. And for investments in tech, the tech will certainly change. But the question is also um, what tech can be brought in that's such that it's the software that updates, you know, rather than having to go rip things out of the building and put new things in such that things can change potentially even on a daily basis. Yeah. And it also means what happens when the building becomes fixed is that then society changes to adapt to the building. And that's what you don't want. That's the scenario you want to avoid. And I wonder with the, the advent of so much digital experience in architecture, are we getting to a point and I, I, you know, we have a team that's actually been exploring this with clients, the digital experience team, which is, you know, what happens when your architecture actually can be ever changing? So when your architecture, you know, let's say it's your building facades, your building skins or, you know, or components of buildings that are um, done in a way with technology infused into them that they can actually change their appearance. And I know it's, it, it feels like so far off, but the technology is there now. You know, actually the building could change as society changes, which totally you know, transforms the equation. I mean, it's scary, too, because it, there's a level of, like, sort of ground shifting under your feet kind of thing. If if the world around you is shape-shifting and morphing, then it can be hard to get your bearings. But if it's sort of shape-shifting in the way that a tree does, like a slow growth that can respond to the environment in terms of, you know, leaning towards the sun and being resilient and moving its branches in the wind. That makes sense to me. I agree with you because I think that's where it would get really interesting, where let's say that there's some shifts in climate such that the building actually needs to morph a bit to, to actually work with the climate. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that could be done in a way that actually makes it better for those that are using the building and better for those that are, you know, living around the building. 
that that could be amazing uh, and transformative. But at the same time, you know, if it's technology that just is, I want the building to look blue today and green tomorrow, that I'm not sure that does it. Right. Well, and there's also, I always go back to the light switch because there's something really trusty and reliable about reaching out to the same spot in every room to find that light switch. And, and if the light switch isn't there and you don't know which app you need to fiddle with <laughs> to turn right. on the lights, <laughs> there's right. a you're, feeling you're, of real insecurity. standing in darkness yeah. for hours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's interesting that we can do that now. And then, and the same thing is true with like a door handle. Like I know mm-hmm. where the door handle is, but what happens if, you know, I don't want to touch the door handle, right? <laughs> right. Uh, so there's like a set of like levers that can be pulled in different ways to take projects one direction or another. I think there's also another question that's out there too, given all the, you know, discussions about resilience and sustainability, you know, do we need to build new, you know, can we um, think about how we can reuse what we have in society um, as, as bones for something different um, rather than just knocking it down and building new? Oh, I a hundred percent believe in, you know, adapting the bones for something that we need. I feel really uncomfortable when all signs of history have been erased and it feels like when everything's yeah, totally too new, right? new like, I don't feel yeah, comfortable at all. Right. It does not give me a sense of any sort of depth of roots. I don't I trust you. anything around me. <laughs> and, it, you know, I don't know which corporate levers were in charge of this. <laughs> I like, feel so clean that you don't know, like you don't, it does, something just doesn't feel right. I right? need history. Yeah. And that's one of the magical things about your trip to Rome, right? D.C., while chock full of monuments and symbolism that represent the American journey, it's young compared to Rome. And when you can go and experience that level of cultural depth, I think you have much more of a connection to humanity than when everything's being sort of erased and rebuilt around you. I, I agree with you. And, you know, we, you know, living and growing up in DC, I remember there was a part of DC that, you know, I really didn't know about. And, you know, DC is really a two river town, but I grew up uh, thinking it was a one river town because I really didn't understand, you know, about the, this other side uh, of the city and through um, some opportunities uh, there was, you know, this uh, site that used to be uh, part of the Navy Yard that was making battleships during World War II. After World War II finished, the Navy kind of, you know, contracted back to a smaller footprint, and it left this part of the city where, you know, again, didn't know about it. But there came a time that, you know, it was an opportunity to uh, think differently about, you know, the growth of neighborhoods in the city. And this area that's ca- it's called the, the Yards, it's a new mm-hmm. neighborhood in D.C., mm-hmm. And it is, it's, you know, been written about a lot now, but it revitalized uh, a waterfront. It brought attention to a part of town that definitely needed it. And it reused a lot of old buildings in a way that kind of gave new life to these old bones. And they're amazing spaces. And then certainly they're sprinkling in of new buildings, but it's that, like you said, it's that rich tapestry now of old and new together, Mm -hmm. um, you know, on the banks of a waterway that, you know, people didn't really understand and and could, and couldn't appreciate. And now it's all kind of coming together in a way that says that, you know what, community can still can happen here. It doesn't all have to be new. Yes. I mean, and the High Line is a great example of that. Absolutely. As well. And I think the story of the High Line is so much richer and so much more important to the city, knowing what it was to begin with. 
Right. And, and, and I agree with you. And, and the beauty of the High Line is, I also is that now it's this connected thread that feels like it was always a part of the city. Yeah. You know, it's <laughs> like you can't imagine the city without it. Right. Okay. So I've got one last question that is important. Um, we haven't talked about you personally too much, but I know you're a father of two daughters. I am. And um, I'm sure they have all the Legos they could dream <laughs> of having. <laughs> they are, they are amazing uh, daughters. Uh, my, my older daughter does not want to be a designer, which is great. She wants to be an actress. Okay. So she's going to Northwestern university in the fall. So very excited and, uh, for her, proud of what she's doing. And our uh, younger daughter wants to be an interior designer, which I'm also really excited about for different reasons. Right. Yeah. But I guess I hope that they, when they're through with their, education that they emerge in a world that truly appreciates all voices uh, equally so that whether it's the two of them or others that they can be equal parts contributor to society and that their voices are heard loud and clear just like everybody else's well and it sounds like you're doing your part to build a society that does allow for equal valuation of all voices well, thank you. We're, we are certainly trying. And, uh, you know, I think the nice thing about the environment that we've created at, at, at Gensler is it is an environment that appreciates uh, all voices globally uh, and recognizes that, you know, we are truly trying to shape, you know, the future of our communities and our cities and that this moment in time that we're all in, I think, sorely um, points out the need for us to give attention to all, not just a few. Well put. Thank you so much, Jordan. Thank you for sharing your story and your smarts and and the nature of the work that you're doing. This has been really fascinating. Uh, It's been great talking (laughs) with you. Thanks for uh, bringing me on and uh, really looking forward to future dialogues. Hey, thanks for listening. To see images of Jordan's work and read the show notes, click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app or go to cleverpodcast.com where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would, please do us a favor and rate and review. It really does help a lot. We also love chatting with you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Clever Podcast, and you can find me at Amy Devers. Clever is produced by 2VDE Media with editing by Rich Straffolino, production assistance from Laura Jaramillo, and music by L1011. Clever is proudly distributed by Design Milk. Hello there. This message is coming to you from the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, a collection of fascinating conversations with leading historians, giving you the lowdown on history's biggest characters, hidden stories and greatest adventures. Speaking of great adventures, this week, the History Extra podcast is brought to you by Booking.com. Whether you're looking for a culture-filled city break, a local getaway or a far-flung adventure, you can save at least 30% with Booking.com's Black Friday deals. These deals are for a limited time only, so you'll need to book before 1st of December to make the most of them. But the good news is that you'll have the flexibility to travel any time in 2021. Head to booking.com forward slash Black Friday to book your next big adventure.